This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Take the baseline out. Uh huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knocks podcast. I am Dan Pavalli, coming at you this time without my co-host, Andy Bailey. I am not alone, however, because as we keep the season preview train rolling, we are lucky enough to have Tom Rendy of NBA Math to come jump on and talk to us about, let's get a fake drum roll in here, the 2017-2018 Sacramento Kings, everybody's most interesting team. The 50-something win Sacramento Kings of 2017-2018. How are you doing tonight, Tom? Well, I'm doing great, and I couldn't be happier to be talking about the, one of the premier teams in the NBA right now. Yeah, I'm pretty stoked about it, too. They turned out to be very interesting this offseason. They did, they did not disappoint, and I think... Wherever you go, however you go, for energy on the go, it's got to be five-hour energy. It works fast, it works long, it tastes good, and with zero sugar and four calories, there's nothing holding you back. Fits your pocket, fits your backpack, fits your on-the-go life, whether you're going to work, going on vacation, or just going out with friends. Five-Hour Energy. Energy on the go. For more information, visit 5hourenergy.com. The, but they were fascinating from the get-go because they traded DeMarcus Cousins midseason, which is something... I guess everyone assumed was going to happen, but there was the reports out there that he was going to eventually sign the designated player extension when he got it this summer. And then to see him move, it was like, well, what are they going to do? They're going to have cap space, and, and they're the kings. So are they going to do something stupid? Are they really going to try and get young, or are they going to lean into this rebuild? So you pick up De'Aaron Fox in the draft. That's a pick that everyone could support. They needed a point guard. But then you go out and you sign Zach Randolph, George Hill, and Vince Carter uh, to forty plus million dollars in contract salary for next season, which runs counter to their timeline. But at the same, at the same time, you want mentors in the locker room because this franchise has been toxic from the outside, and a lot of the rumors that were going around was that Demarcus Cousins was a part of that. But they really didn't have any strong veteran leadership in place, and now they do. So to kind of start there, what was were you, and you had written about this earlier in the summer for NBA Math, were, were you fine with them giving out those deals to Hill, Randolph, and, and Carter to try and 
they basically what they did is they prioritized establishing a culture over going out there and playing the part of the Brooklyn Nets and becoming this high end salary dumping ground. Um, like you said, like, it was incredibly divisive. This um, this overture that they took of bringing in veterans, which you know, to be honest with you, I think just a few years ago, um, I do believe in advanced stats. I mean, this is why we write for NBA math. Um, but at the same time, I think I've come around to the idea of culture playing a bigger part into a team's success um, and at least like settling a strong foundation of a team, especially one like the Kings. Um, being Knicks fans, I think we get the idea of like trying to set a good tone for your organization. Um, and sometimes that's best to do with management. But I think there's something to be said with having players like a Zach Randolph and a George Hill um, that can help really set the tone and Vince Carter that can help set the tone for your franchise and especially with um you have eight guys on rookie scale contracts right now and that's more than half your roster is filled with these these young players that ideally you could have had a situation like the Nets where um you see a cap environment where teams are starved for salary cap space like it was just a few years ago um so it's kind of funny how we've cycled back into this system where teams are in need of salary cap space and need to trade guys um, so the kings could have went that route and i think there would have been a justification for doing that uh, but i think there's even more of a case to do what they did um, and to have this type of strong foundation set with another top with likely top five top six pick coming in and then you have nine guys on um, these rookie scale contracts i think you have 10 guys under the age of 25 i think you know i don't know how much more youth you can try to input into your roster at that point um, and trying to use those lottery tickets to get maybe half of them to work out. Um, I think that's the right move. Um, so I was all for it. And I think it was actually a move that we had mentioned beforehand that it was very unkingsing. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I was really happy that they did that. Uh, and I think it was a positive step forward for their organization. It was, it was also very Kings, though, that you sign Zach Randolph to be this mentor, and then he's arrested for felony marijuana possession with intent to sell, and the charges get knocked down to a misdemeanor. His agent says the acquisition, accusations were fault. It was weed, so I really don't care, and it's not something to necessarily— it doesn't say anything of his impact in the locker room or how he should be viewed or whether his voice will carry weight. Again, it's, it's, it's weed. Like, let's just move past it, but it's just funny that— the Kings go out there and they're paying money for these high character guys, and then that happens. Like that's just so Kings. Just for, forget about like the actual validity of it or not. And I'm not even here to crucify Randolph. It's just so hysterical that this is what happens. Like that was the very Kings part of this off season. And within the first month of it happening, maybe it was even weeks. Honestly, um, so what you just said, um, I'm on the same page as you on that side of things uh it's just crazy of course that that had happened uh, that's kind of the bigger point right so yeah so it was just they haven't completely gotten away from being the kings but I, I i agree with you there's even as i've become more immersed in the number side of basketball and as i you place emphasis on switchability and, and youth and the kings didn't don't really get that in these guys that they signed vince carter you know he was really good for the grizzlies last year but he's he's old as hell uh, George Hill can probably defend some twos, and he will have to guard some twos, but Zach Randolph is a defensive liability. His offensive game isn't really that big of an advantage, even when you play him at the five anymore. But I do believe that having those strong voices uh, in the locker room are going to help. I think this only becomes an issue if we see these guys eat into the playing time of kiddies who deserve to be on the floor more because you still need to develop them. Like, you know, if Zach Randolph... Uh, is getting minutes at points over Scal or Willie Cauley-Stein, 
that's a problem. If you see that George Hill being on the roster is impacting the amount of court time De'Aaron Fox is getting because they're not playing them together enough, that's an issue. Uh, if Vince Carter is going to take away from minutes for Justin Jackson or Buddy Heald or Bogdan Bogdanovich, like th- those are all Malachi Richardson, who who I really like. Like th- that's an issue. And uh, so if you're going to blend all this together and these veterans were brought in including hill kind of under the guise that you're here to grease the wheels of this rebuild then i think that's even more fine because assuming you're going to balance playing time judiciously and i'm not saying george hill can't play 25 30 minutes a night i'm just saying it shouldn't come at the expense of De'Aaron fox's exposure you want to see him in kind of a higher usage role at point guard while george hill plays off him because you eventually want to get to the point where you don't need george hill to help De'Aaron Fox. So as long as you're doing that, they did not bring in enough talent by any means to stop the tank. Like, this isn't a team we're going to be talking about where it's, oh, damn, they won 35 games, and this was their one-year window to tank, and they blew it. They're still going to be hard-pressed to get to that 30-win mark so long as the rotation is put together properly. Yeah, you said a lot of interesting things. Like, the one thing that popped out at first that I had written down was uh, the two drawbacks of, like, the roster construction where, like I mentioned, the lack of space that we had both talked about um, in this salary cap environment, and the other was playing time, right? Um, and what you talked about of how um, Coach Ager is going to balance these two things, of balancing the veterans with youth. And as I know he had trouble doing that in Memphis, and even a little bit last year he did have trouble with that until towards the end of the year when they had traded off Cousins. Um, so it'll be interesting if he's able to balance that in the right manner. And to be honest with you, it does seem like a really difficult task because, like we had just mentioned, they have all these different young um, players on the team and there's a ton of roster crunches that we're probably going to get into um, that include Bogdan Bogdanovich and Buddy Heald on the wing and then we have um, Scal, Willie Cauley-Stein um, if you're into Papayanis, which I'm not as into <laughs> uh, uh, and then you still have Kufos and Randolph and uh, Carter um, Temple and Jackson on the wing and there's just so many guys right? You have so many guys to play and it'll be interesting if he's able to um, toe the line of where he's able to play guys and where he's able to sit them uh, and not disrupt the rhythm of the team. So I think what will probably end up happening is he's not as judicious as giving the younger guys playing time to begin the season. And like most teams, maybe he's able to put his foot on the pedal, put his foot on the pedal a little bit earlier mid season and start playing the younger guys a little bit more. I think that would probably be the ideal balance he's able to reach, but I guess we'll see what happens. And you never know, maybe they got themselves an asset to trade in George Hill because that contract uh, looks really good. You're going to give him two years and $39 million, uh, before you have that $18 million partial guarantee in year three, which I think it's only guaranteed for a million. So you've signed him essentially to this two-year $40 million deal, and maybe some team, knowing that if he's not going to pan out, they can get rid of him for nothing in that third year. The point guard market is still saturated. You look around the league, and there aren't a lot of teams that might be interested in uh, filling a vacancy at, at, at starting point guard. And and the ones that might be, uh, they're rebuilding. Like, the Magic don't know what they have in Alfred Payton, but you're not going to go and trade for George Hill most likely unless they, you know, lose their minds. So it's, it's interesting, and I would think that he's— I know people talk about, oh, these contracts could be moved. I don't know who's trading for Zach Randolph. Like, maybe in the second year if they need salary matching fodder. Someone would trade for Vince Carter, but I don't know why you trade his expiring deal. And it seems like him and Zebo were clearly uh, a package pairing at this point. I don't think we're talking enough about how we have Dave Yeager now with 
uh, Vince Carter and Zach Randolph. So these are just low-key, the Sacramento Grizzlies right now. Uh, I, I would be interested to see, though, if maybe De'Aaron Fox shows out. Maybe the Kings are just a little bit better than they're supposed to be, and there's a rush to get to a point where they're not winning games that they need to be losing. But George Hill might be that guy who just helps expedite the midseason tank uh, because I don't know why you'd want to keep him necessarily for the life of this deal when looking at Sacramento's trajectory unless you plan on because hey we don't have our 2019 first round pick we need him on the roster because we want to compete for a playoff spot by then yeah that would be an interesting take and like that's definitely probably something they could be looking into as being serious um I hope they're not looking at it that way uh so I'd be more interested in taking the route that you just said um with making a trade and you could look at situations like um I'm not trying to start trade talk already with George Hill. Um, but, but you know, with Isaiah Thomas's situation right now, um, you could cobble together expirings in a first. Um, at that deadline, that first would look intriguing enough probably to the Kings to move a guy like Hill. Um, and Cleveland would probably find some intrigue with plugging a guy like Hill into the lineup if Thomas is in that dire of straits with his hip. Um, you know, that, that's the one that kind of jumped out at me for now. But I'm sure you can make it work. The Spurs, if they're like – if um, Tony Parker has no chance of coming back and Patty Mills isn't getting it done. You could probably make something work there. Um, I did not look at the contracts for them, but I know Cleveland could probably work. So those are just some examples of things that the Kings could do with Hill. And you'd get a half a season for Hill to mentor Fox. Um, Ideally, that would be enough because you'd want to start Fox the majority of minutes halfway through that point anyway. And in year two, you kind of want, you're hoping Fox takes the reins. Um, I'm high on Fox. Uh, I don't know where you stand on him uh, in regards to where the draft fell um, because I think I probably leaned towards him being the third best player in the draft, which might be a hot take, but uh, I'm curious where you fell. I know I'm curious where you fell in your overall um, feelings towards Fox because obviously it was a good draft, but I'm curious what you thought. He has to show me that he just has the the three point range. Uh, That's the Mm -hmm. big thing for me is that we talked about, well, John Wall will develop three point range, but he's been kind of up and down and I think he's at the point now where he's a threat, but save for that one season where he was knocking them down at a league average clip or better, it wasn't like you looked at him and said, oh, hey, uh, this guy's developed into a shooter. So I, I just kind of wonder what, what that's going to be for him. And it's just, I mean, you even look at his field goal percentage on two-point jumpers while he was at Kentucky, 36.5% on two-point jumpers. Uh, excuse me, 36.2%. So I misspoke. I just looked that up again from hoop math. Like that's not very encouraging. So maybe he gets there, but if you, you know if you're surrounded by enough floor spacers, maybe it doesn't matter. He has the tools to be good on defense, and John Wall could. If that's the comparison we're going to go with, he can be a very good defensive player uh, when he's locked in. So th- there, there's a chance for me. It, it's tough to choose him over guys like Josh Jackson or Lonzo Ball or or even Markel Fultz. So uh, you, you know, even Malik Monk might end up being a better pro than him just because he has a more fluid offensive game I think you take the Aaron Fox because he has that experience and know-how as a playmaker but I'm interested to see uh, where he lands now that you think he could be the third best player in the draft because I don't even know was he ever really considered that top five prospect it's it never really seemed like he was mentioned in that that conversation no he really kind of jumped on the scene and the only reason I feel that way is um I I know I'm going to the film but I do have trust in his jumper and I think like you had to take some some trust into his form if like you have an idea of like player shooting and stuff like that so i do agree that his form can make it work and uh his free throw percentage was 
uh, what was it? It was 74% last year in college, uh, which was encouraging for me. And that's not the end all be all when you translate to it to um, NBA three point range. Uh, our friends over at Nyon Calculus has done great work in this regard of taking the combination of uh, three pointers in college with free throws and the attempts. And that's kind of the big thing with De'Aaron Fox. My biggest issue, and maybe this is where I have the my biggest um, not regrets, but warnings of him actually being a good player is his willingness to take the three-point shot because he didn't even take two three-pointers a game um, when he was in college and then you look at a guy um, like John Wall and he took over three a game and the difference in percentage-wise was well over like it was nearly 10% difference between those two so that's a huge difference uh, it was okay it was like it was the difference between 25% and 32% for John Wall um, so I hope he can get into at least John Wall level, right? That's the that's kind of the barometer, right? Because if you can have the athleticism of Wall, which he probably doesn't have, but that's the closest comp you can make. And if he can get close to his shooting averages, you can cobble together a player that would be the third best player in the draft. But like you said, it's a bit of a hot take. Uh, I just have trust in his athleticism, and I hope that his form is able to take shape in the NBA. And with the right environment, I think the Kings are forming. Um, I think he's... <laughs> <laughs> I think he should be good enough to make it happen. Um, but like I said, I'm bullish on him more so than others. I shouldn't have said he wasn't talked about as a top five prospect because obviously he went number five and a lot of people pegged him for the Kings. Sure. I just meant in terms of top three when, you know, you always have those. I mean, what there was that chatter like maybe the Sixers would take him. So I, de- I definitely misspoke there. I just don't, like you said, maybe it's the right environment, the right compliments around him. I just need to see more out of his jumper because if you're going to be especially a ball-dominant point guard, you kind of need to have that range on you. And I think Wall's gotten to the point where he'll shoot 33% every year, I guess, like clockwork, or close to it, 30-plus percent. And that's good enough for uh, defenses to do more than just respect his lightning-quick first step, and they'll play up on him a little bit more. So if you get to that point, you can be a star in this league. Uh, We've seen it with John Wall, so maybe it happens with De'Aaron Fox. It's going to be fascinating to see how they bring him along, too. Is this going to be... A situation where you know Wall got to baptism by fire, essentially, or now you have Hill on the roster. You gave him a lot of money. Are you bringing uh, De'Aaron Fox, uh, not off the bench, but are you even going to let him crack 20 minutes? What happens in crunch time? Are you going to give him the ball? Are you going to have him on the floor with George Hill? So I think a lot's going to depend on, yeah, maybe you're laying the groundwork in the locker room and you have a guy like George Hill who can help mentor him now. But what's going to – I'm just so interested to see how they're going to use him, how often – they're going to use him. How much of a leash he's going to be given when he is on the floor, especially with George Hill? Will they let De'Aaron Fox be the primary ball handler? It makes sense because Hill's by far the better off-ball shooter at this point. But at the same time, the temptation to go with that more proven veteran will be there. So that's going to be a big question that is up there to define their season. I just think right now um, I could probably see Jackson, Ball, Fultz, Dennis Smith all being better than him and uh, maybe he'll end up being I I have no qualms with them taking him top five I would just I like that I like that you said I'm intrigued now and it's gonna make me pay so much more attention to him that you said he could possibly be the best player uh, in this draft class and he he said it too and he has that bit of John Wall in him it seems like where he's just like oh I can hit NBA threes like it wasn't like I'll work on it it's just oh I can hit NBA threes and that's something that John Wall would say like yeah I could win MVP yeah I'm the best two-way point guard in the league and I'll probably end up backtracking at some point when I see a few more of his games in the regular season. But I would say 
I wouldn't pick him as rookie of the year. Like the environment he's created, like the environment in with the Kings right now is not catered to him putting up numbers, right? That's probably a Dennis Smith situation in Dallas. Um, but I do think with time, I guess we'll see where he ends up. But it's funny though, right? We always compare point guards who have trouble shooting in college and um, who have explosive athleticism to John Wall because no successful point guards that can't shoot are that good, right? Because you right. see guys like Alfred Payton and Ricky Rubio, like they're good, but like they have a ceiling to how good they can be. And that's why they'll never be in the star category. And that's a great point. If, if he doesn't end up shooting, there's no way in hell he'll ever be the third best point guard in the, in this draft, a uh, third best player in this draft. Um, so that, that's kind of what it comes down to, right? It's funny that we can talk all about um, maybe his driving ability, his transition, um, how good of a ball distributor he could be, how he plays in the pick and roll. And it comes down to, is he going to shoot the three? <laughs> that's kind of the NBA now, right? Uh, can you shoot the three? And uh, I have faith that he, he hopefully will, um, but I think the rookie year actually will be kind of key in seeing how often he's willing to unleash from deep and how hesitant he is to take it. Um, I'm, hopeful, I'm hopeful that if he plays a little bit off ball with Hill, that he'll have some chance at getting some catch-and-shoot opportunities, and that should at least ideally give him some confidence um, with more open looks rather than some uh, off-the-dribble kind of looks that he'll eventually get as a point guard. So we'll see. But catch-and-shoot opportunities ideally with a guy like Hill would ideally bump up some of his efficiency numbers, at least his first year. Yeah, well, and I guess that's a big part of having Hill there, and it, it does the same thing if Buddy Heald is going to become a more willing passer. Uh, if you have those two guys, those two perimeter ball handlers who are, one, willing to defer, and two, kind of able to make defenses collapse, like we're going to see they don't have to be good shooters to knock down these catch and fire looks like especially if they're open john wall shot 35 plus percent on catch and shoot threes last year uh so it's just and but again i guess it it depends like john wall also shot under 34 percent on wide open looks last year but we also know that he was better um in 2015 2016 so it's just i don't i don't know it'd be interesting but i do that is a good point about hill like if you have him on the floor and he's gonna collapse defenses and throw it out to you and you're gonna be open or you're hitting them off the catch and you're not taking all these pull-up threes you know john wall took more pull-up threes per game uh, than he did catch and shoot and he doesn't necessarily he has bradley beal but that's about the really only secondary creator the wizards have around him the kings have given uh, buddy he oh excuse me they haven't They've given De'Aaron Fox a, a little bit more than that because you look at Buddy Heald. He's a good ball handler. You can run him with some pick and roll. Garrett Temple can play point guard in a pinch. The same thing with Vince Carter, and we know George Hill is a willing passer. So you surround him with all these different types, and may, maybe that works. Maybe that's how you bring him along. He doesn't need to be a great jump shooter. Uh, he is Again, he is a good pick and roll playmaker, and he looks like he could kind of be very pester like a pest on defense and if you can do that you can just hit just enough of your three-pointers which it seems like John Wall is has been able to do then then that's big for him and the comparison to John Wall at this point is just it might be lazy like it's just you know it's like because it's like you said anyone who struggles with a jumper but has semi uh high athleticism to his game and is a point guard and, and can play a little bit of pick and roll and can work the corners a little bit on the move we're just like oh that's John Wall uh, so maybe that's not even the most apt comparison to him, but I'm very interested to see how they develop his jump shot. And I, I did not even think of it that way where we talk about, oh, Hill works because he can play off De'Aaron Fox. But, you know, it's going to help that De'Aaron Fox will get to play off someone like Hill who's going to get into the defenses and you know that he'll actually pass. And Fox is going to be the guy that these defenses leave open. If, if you're going to use the Hill-Heald 
Fox combination, who who are you leaving open? Like, uh, we'll assume whoever the Kings are running out at center won't be beyond the three-point line. But if it's Scal, you know, he could be beyond the three-point line, as we saw to close the year. So so that's something I just did not think about that you pointed out. So now I'm even more intrigued. So suffice to say, I will be watching lots of De'Aaron Fox this season <laughs> because Tom has piqued my curiosity. <laughs> um, so the one thing that you said was interesting to me is, do you have any strong opinions? Because I've read recently that I haven't watched enough of them, to be honest with you, and I guess I'll see more as the season goes on. Goes on, But the difference with Bogdan, Bogdanovich and Buddy Heald. Um, some people are very high on Bogdan, and they think he'll be good enough to compete with Buddy Heald coming out the gates of the season, that he might be able to steal a good chunk of minutes, that he might even be able to play more than him. Uh, I don't know how much Vivek will be into that, but... Um, uh, but they think his all-around game of pick-and-roll and shooting can at least, you know, he's probably a better pick-and-roll handler than Buddy Hield at this point. Shooting-wise, Bogdan's numbers in Europe are really strong. He shot over 40% last year, um, and even though Buddy Hield shot uh, well over 40% during his time in Sacramento, you know, I don't know if he'll be able to hold up as well because a lot of people project him to be more of a six-man kind of guy. So I'm just curious if you think that Bogdan has even a chance to be a better player than Buddy at this point. Or maybe you're just a super high on Buddy, and I'm not sure. I, I guess he would have a chance. Uh, he's He seems like he would be a better option to be the ball-handling facilitator yep. on the wings yep. right out of the gate. Um, and he, he played a lot like that, and that's basically the extent I know about him. I'm, I am wondering, however, how much uh, Dave Yeager wants to see stuff like this. We, we look at the Kings roster, and we, we assume that maybe they'll favor this interchangeability because you have Hill and Fox, and you have to play them at the same time, which kind of pushes all these other guys up a position at the wing. Like, you know, I, I would love to see some of these lineups where maybe you go super hyper small and put yep. – uh, healed at the four and Bogdan at the three or, vi- or vice versa. Yeah, you're going to be undersized. You're going to give up a ton of uh, offensive rebounds, but it might just be interesting to see. Uh, I on- that's I honestly don't know. I think if the Kings are hell-bent on getting more facilitating out of their lineup and healed doesn't really step up, uh, you know, he I-, I could maybe you do go to it. But he was he was a lot better, it seemed like, with that uh, once he got to the Kings. I mean, he was being given more of a green light, and I don't think you're going to look at a guy who averaged 2.2 assists per 36 minutes and say that he can be this top-tier distributor. Uh, Maybe it all depends on the learning curve uh, for Bogdanovich now that he's coming over. They obviously think that he's ready to make a contribution unless they were just like, oh, hell, we've got this cap space to burn, so we're just going to use it because he's their third highest-paid player going into the next season. So it's, you know, they gave him more than mid-level money, essentially, uh, so you believe he's going to make an impact? I I honestly don't know how they how they would view him, and I didn't watch a lot of him. Uh, but prior to what he came over and what I've seen is limited. The only thing, like I said, know about him that I know you said is he's supposed to be this very fluid uh, ball handler on the wings. And if that's something the Kings are interested in, where they want this kind of I call it the net style approach now, just where they're the budding. T- I don't know if we can call them budding, but they're the team that's rebuilding, and they want everyone on the court basically to run be able to run pick and roll and I think if you put Scal at the five it's very easy to establish that type of synergy on the Kings I just wonder whether they're interested in that type of dynamic and I don't foresee a scenario in which one of the minutes for each of these two players is coming at the expense of the other and if it was I could see the Kings rolling with Buddy Heald a little bit more because at this point he's more established in the NBA and he shot really well for them once he came over through those 25 games so 
that would be my guess, but you, you never know. I mean, that was a good point to make out as well. Yeah, that, I was kind of torn between those two things that you said, right? Because there's obviously a lot of stock in Buddy Heald. He was like the crown jewel of that trade with DeMarcus Cousins. But then you have this player in Bogdan who's getting this really nice contract. Like he got paid pretty significantly to come over. So you have these like two juxtaposing ideas uh, of these players against each other and where do you align? And obviously coaches don't think about this when they play players, but they obviously play in the subconscious a little bit. Um, so I'm interested to see how that eventually plays out. I think he'll probably get the um, the green light to begin with, and then maybe things change over time. But I am interested, and it's so funny because their roster is constructed in such an interesting way of like that they don't have wings, which is just the NBA in general. But they have the option to play small so much. Um, but then you have Dave Yeager, and you have Scal and Zebo and Willie Cauley-Stein and Kufo still. So it's like you can only play small to an extent. Uh, before you get roadblocked with like a bunch of big men on your roster, uh, so I'm curious how they're able to um, to di- like to um, diversify their lineups in this way. Like I've thought the the Fox healed, maybe you can get away with Bogdan playing the three, and then you have Scallon, Willie Cauley Stein. At least the shooting on that lineup would be a ton of fun. At least giving Fox the option to kick it out to either healed or Bogdan or Scal's got. A beautiful stroke that I'm sure we'll talk about for hours. Um, and Willie Cauley Stein diving to the rim. I mean, that's like a pretty solid, at least fun offense. They might get roasted on defense, but at least it would be fun to watch a little bit on offense for them. Yeah, their front court, and we talked about this a little bit before we jumped on the pot, is just, it's kind of weird because when you have all those big men options, it's not conducive to necessarily playing small all the time. You can kind of mimic it because of how wing-like Scal's game seem to be down the stretch run of last season, but we have to assume Zach Randolph will see the floor uh, unless the, the Kings, have, even if they go full suns and eventually shut him down, like for just some reason, like they did with Tyson Chandler, it's going to be more than half the season through. Uh, are you just resigned to not playing Harry Giles and at the pro level right now? Uh, are you going to just not play coach to Kufos? Because you would think that if you don't play him, you know, he's going to opt in. He has that player option after next season and with the money that centers have been getting, I don't think he's going to get 8.8 million on the open market. Do you try and play him and hope that someone wants to, to trade for him as that backup center towards the middle of the season? Uh, but then again, you're taking minutes away from Willie Cauley Stein and, and Scal. So it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting situation to juggle because maybe you look at it and you can point out a couple guys like Giles and Pop Jonas who don't need to play and who won't play. And that's fine if you're going to just be running these traditional front courts all the time. But if we're going to assume that maybe they want to see even Justin Jackson play a little bit of the four, uh, you're going to have to find those minutes somewhere. And I don't necessarily know where they're coming from. I, is this going to be a situation where Dave Yeager's like, you know, Randolph, you're not playing tonight. Or you're, you're, you're going to be this 10 minutes per game guy and, and that's it. Or is that going to be Kufos? Because they have to be taken away from somewhere. And I'm, I'm honestly not sure what the Kings are trying to build on the court. Um, and a, a good, a good kind of barometer for them would be how much do you play Garrett Temple, who is that type of wing that really sort of does everything. You could play him at point guard if you needed to, which you shouldn't, given the personality of your roster. But he can play the two or the three. He can defend some fours. So if you're invested in playing that way, he might be someone who you know he also has a player option after next year. Maybe you're trying to build up his trade value so teams are interested. But if you're seeing someone like him get some spin amid all this that might clue us into their identity. I, I honestly don't know which which way they're going to lean. I do not think, however, that they signed Vince Carter and Zach Randolph 
under the notion that they weren't going to play. And that's what makes this team very confusing to me. Right, they have, like, for a team that's, like, not good, they have one of the most interesting roster breakdowns of all teams, right? <laughs> like, it's it's crazy. I feel like there's at least some type of clarification of, like, where minutes are going to be distributed. And then with them, it's just, like, I mean, he could get, like, 30 minutes. Like, <laughs> um, And I think it'll probably change throughout the season. Gary Temple's a great example of that, right? Because if you tell me right now how many small forwards do the Kings have, you could reasonably tell me they have one, and his name is Justin Jackson. <laughs> That is like you could make that case to me, and um, and that kind of it's not shocking considering like the the dearth of wing depth in the NBA, but still, it's it's kind of insane. That's how they do th- that. That's how they're gonna have to construct this team. And you could probably get away with Vince Carter playing there, and Temple in spot minutes. You could probably get away with playing him with a three, with how good he is on defense. Um, but it's still not like ideal. And considering the where they are as a team right now, it's it's okay. But it just is kind of unfortunate that they have um, all these lottery tickets that I said of, you know, at the guard position and at um, at the big man position, and you and you want to see them all play, and it kind of comes down to that same thing we talked about earlier, how Coach Yeager is going to distribute the minutes, and uh, that'll be kind of like the the cloud hanging over the season right now is like who's going to develop, and. Um, if he's able to give them enough playing time to see if they can develop right now, because it might be too late by the time the season, you know, halfway through the season, you can only get so much of an indication of how good a player is. Buddy Heald last year, we got, I know that he was traded, so that's why they didn't get to see him more than that, but 25 games doesn't tell me as much as, you know, 80 games, obviously. So this will be a bigger season for me to tell how good of a player he is. And considering he's a little bit older than most, uh, Young players, it'll be really important for him to have a good season this year. Yeah, he'll be 24 in December, so it's kind of like kind of crazy when you look at a guy like Giannis, who's 22 right now. So, um, uh, so it'll be interesting. So for me, though, when you look at a team like the Kings, they're obviously planning for the future. Do you think they plausibly could have a a team right now that has like a number two option on a championship team? Do you think? Fox or Scal or I guess it's really those two guys, oh, right? Young you players, like a number yeah. two. Yeah. It's a good question. I would be more inclined to say that it could be Scal. Uh, right, yeah, me too. Just yeah. after seeing what he pieced together after that like that twenty five game run at the end of the season, he was averaging he cleared twenty minutes per game, was averaging ten points per game, six rebounds, he shot 37.5% from three on a very limited number of attempts. He shot fifty four percent from the field overall and, and it was just really fun to watch it he could create off the dribble than more people gave him or at least you know maybe people gave him credit for that and I just wasn't paying attention but he created off the dribble better than I would have thought that he could you looked like his defensive switchability was really interesting to me because you look at like the, the offense and they were actually better during that 25 game stretch without him offensively on the floor statistically it was he helped their defense not a great deal but they let up 107.8 points per possessions with him on the court compared to 112.3 without him which is kind of a big difference it's almost a five point difference and that that switchability helps if you can use him even if he's at the four because we know Cauley Stein can switch he has that like when you watch him on defense he, he kind of has that Nerlens Noel likeness to him where where it might even be more so uh, perhaps just because he seems like he's flying all over he has those long arms he can as a big he's going to get you steals that other guys wouldn't he should be able to be an okay uh, rim protector and he, and he can be that rim runner doesn't necessarily seem to want anything more 
on the offensive end, which is a big deal. And when they played him uh, and Scal together during that 25-game stretch, the offense, you know, they went – the offense wasn't bad. Like, it it, re- it wasn't bad during that stretch with those two on the floor. So if you have those two big guys who can sort of balance each other out, and we know that Scal has the uh, the okay inside-out game and eventually both of these guys should kind of hit – on the defensive end, that that would be interesting to see. So I would have to roll with Scal uh, since we just kind of went off on that tangent there. And I was actually just double-checking my statement about the offense, and it was actually not good with those two on the floor to finish the year. But that's kind of to be expected, 104.4 points per 100 possessions, which is about bottom 10. But it looks like it looks like those two have, just because of what Scal was able to do, and he kind of looked like he broke right on the offensive end, it looks like they can coexist together long term, and I think to have that big, if you're going to have a big who can be the number two option offense, he needs to sort of have that switchability factor, and it looks like Scout has that on the defensive end, and then it looks like he has more to his offensive armory on the offensive end than he was expected to, at least this soon, this early into his career. And with his, like you said, like it's kind of almost most important for him to have the switchability at defense at this point in his career um, like with how skinny and long he is you, you kind of want to make sure that he can um, handle the center position right now because on offense he'll be able to make it work especially like stretching the floor like he'll be fine like obviously banging on the board you'll need to be able to beef up a little bit more and be able to grab some more but he should be okay at least uh, since he can play on the defensive side the one thing that I was interested in because I knew he had shot so well in the mid-range so I just wanted to double check how well he shot um, and from 16 feet to three-point range, he shot 58% last year. Um, so that'll probably take a little bit downwards, <laughs> I'd like to think. Uh, and it was only 38 attempts, so obviously small sample size alert. But, um, but that, you know, that just does show, though, how good of a shot he does have. And, like, it doesn't take a genius to look at his high release and think that that's translating to a solid NBA player, um, at least from a shooting standpoint. And I think easily he'll be able to take way more than – Point two three pointers a game uh, as he goes on right it seems like his game more so than others you can easily see that translating a couple feet beyond the three-point arc i'd like to think you agree with that right yeah i don't i don't necessarily know if he's ever going to be the guy who creates his own shot from that far out sure. but, but yeah. you don't really have to um and it, it's he it looks like he did so many he was doing so much on the offensive end that i really couldn't even fathom it at times and i mean if you're going to get a guy a rookie who's you know, he's tall. He's not necessarily this huge, burly guy. But if you're going to give me something like that who's going to shoot 46-plus percent in the post anyway, as a rookie, like, that's not really easy to do. You know, you don't want to work out of the post anymore. But, like, that's a good dump option to have down there all of a sudden. And it makes me wonder, will they eventually try and groom him into to play a little bit more center? Will they trust him um, to sort of get excuse me, the passes out of the post a, a little bit more often than he did when, when he was given those uh, possessions. So it'll, it'll be very, very interesting to see how he develops offensively. And I I could maybe, I could honestly see him being uh, the type of big where you get to run those sort of inverted pick and rolls. And he would have to become a better passer, but it looks like he already has the handle and where you can use him as the ball handler and maybe it's a dual big pick and roll with Willie Cauley Stein I doubt that just because he is it doesn't look like he's going to be much of an outside threat but uh Scal isn't has didn't he didn't shoot that well out of the pick and roll as a roll man last year but because he has such a nice handle and a fluid mid-range game maybe you can run those inverted pick and rolls where it's with him and 
Buddy Heald or Justin Jackson looks like he might be able to be a good slasher. Maybe even De'Aaron Fox. You try and get that little Dennis Smith Jr. element out of him where we see uh, DSJ as that guy who's going to finish off catches uh, off off screen. So maybe you can run a little bit of that. Or maybe it's just that Nikola Jokic-Gary Harris-style telepathic connection where you have guys running backdoor cuts when he has the ball. Again, it looks like he's going to need to – develop as more of a passer but some of the numbers he just put up on, on offense and out of the post and the shooting like you said that he had from mid-range he, he was once again okay under limited three-point volume he might be the most important player to this team's future and a eight three-point let's just get this at eight three-point attempts is nothing so i'm not trying to say that he was just super accurate but he took them and almost a fifth of his shots came from 16 feet uh, out to the three-point line. So the, the range is there, and when you move like a wing as as he does, th- that's a big deal to have in, in a front-court prospect. And we're not about to put him in this unicorn conversation anytime soon. But to, to answer, I guess, your previous point, I would think that he would be the best option they have to look at a guy, their young guys on the roster, and say, hey, maybe he can be the second-best player on a team of, of consequence. And I... You know, I, I would say as of right now, maybe it's easy to argue De'Aaron Fox is the most important player of the rebuild because he plays point guard and you, you kind of drafted him to be this cornerstone. You didn't you didn't do that with Scal at the time. You know, so you he was the twenty eighth overall pick by Phoenix before you got him and I don't think you looked at him like you still have Demarcus Cousins on the roster, so like how are we supposed to know what they envisioned? for him but I still think that he's clearly of the young guys right now just because he has that year under his belt and we saw what he could accomplish individually on the offensive end and we saw kind of the movement he could have on the defensive end he would be their best youngster from that small gaggle and I don't I don't necessarily know who's going to challenge him for that next year Willie Cauley sounds like he's going to be that solid if unspectacular player and I just don't know how they're going to use the Aaron Fox or how much freedom he's going to be given in his first year with George Hill on the roster uh, so the team, like we talked about it earlier, like the roster, right? Like it doesn't necessarily fit perfectly, but I would counter like in thinking about like a couple of the cornerstones, I would say, and Buddy Heel probably should be included in this conversation, but let's just take these three guys. I do think you can make a case that Willie Cauley-Stein, Scal, and Fox do complement each other in the right ways, um, which is kind of important, right? And then you can make the case Buddy Heel does too. So if you had those four guys and they do work together and, I'm not saying they're all going to work out as well as expected, but if they do get to the levels that are hoped, and Scal, if maybe doesn't become the superstar, becomes a good player, and um, Willie Cauley-Stein becomes a solid rim runner and plays good defense, Fox becomes maybe not a superstar, but once again, like that tier below and becomes a really strong top 12-ish point guard in the NBA. Um, and Buddy Hill becomes a really, you know, a, a solid shooting guard. And obviously, you're not talking at this point they do anything strong in the Western Conference. You definitely need one of those guys to break out and become that superstar. But at least you have the right track. And and it's funny that we're saying it in this manner, that this is a positive step, but we're, we have low expectations here with the Kings, right? Like getting this type of strong foundation with those players, and if it could just be those four, we're not even including the Harry Giles lottery ticket. We're not even including uh, my Syracuse boy, Malachi Richardson. <laughs> we're not even including... <laughs> Justin Jackson in this, or Papa Giannis, we're not even including these guys. Um, so if you just get those four guys to be um, even a couple steps below what we project them to be, that is still a really good foundation. Um, and a couple, and one of those guys might bust. Like Fox, I hope it doesn't happen, but he could bust. 
Um, but if they do live up close to those expectations, the Kings could be in some solid company. And for the 2017-18 season, that probably doesn't say much because nothing will happen that are good. But we could look at the positive development. Scal becoming the guy that we say after the season, if we say confidently Scal will be the best player on the next Kings team, that's huge, right? That's what you're looking for. Or Fox, he's going to be our point guard of the future. If we could just say two of those things after the season, you're looking at the season as a huge success as a Kings fan. And ideally a top three pick. But <laughs> um, you're probably looking at those three things and then you're like, wow, this was a great season for the Kings. Well, and I, I get, this is what you said is important. I, if you look at the Kings' most important youngsters as a group, they can all play together, right? It's This isn't a... Yep. They are weird at positions, and there's overlap a lot. But if you look at the most important guys, where you say these youngsters need to play, you, know, you, you can run out Fox, Heald, uh, Bogdanovich, or Jackson, and then Scal and Willie Cauley Stein. That lineup, in theory, is is going to fit. You don't have a ton of this overlapping and and redundant skill set there. And there's a lot of potential switchability there, potentially up front. We normally don't. You know, we're not talking about a small ball four option or a small ball five option here. And Cauley Stein and Scal, they they can really jump out and disrupt some pick and rolls. Uh, and I'm interested to see how we can throw Hill in here because De'Aaron Fox can have that learning curve as a point guard. But running off of screens with Hill and De'Aaron Fox is going to be a lot different for him as he's going towards the basket than running off of screens for Darren Collison, for instance. So so that helps him on the offensive end. And you have these additional weapons. And the fact that everybody fits is big. And what we would then say is, no, they're not going to hit on everybody. But now you look at these names on the roster, and it's, you know, you have Jackson, you you have Scal, you have Willie Cauley-Stein, you want to throw Malachi Richardson in there, you want to throw Bogdan Bogdanovich in there, you want to put Darren Fox in there. You have to imagine they're going to hit on some of these guys, even given the Kings' draft, draft track record, and now you've put yourself in a position where you get to monitor them for a few years, most of them, before you have to pay them, and hopefully if you hit on one or two and they're strong, to really strong starters, or if one of them becomes a star out of um, Fox or, or Scal or Buddy Heald, if, if you get that one fringe all-star, that, that's going to be equally huge. Uh, the, the only thing that gets semi-interesting is you do kind of have to evaluate this in a little bit of haste be, because Willie Cauley-Stein is going to be extension eligible after next year. Yep. And when you start good talking point. about reinvesting in this, you, you want to have a good idea. At the same time, however... Willie Cauley Stein is the one that they would have to pay first, in theory, of the, of like the these core youngsters. And if they wanted to, they can stave that off for two more years until he reaches restricted free agency. So you're gonna get, in essence, two full seasons to kind of look at this group together if you really want to, and you'll be able to figure out, in theory, whether uh, some of these guys are worth repaying. Because in two years, Buddy Heald will be extension eligible. You'll be a year away from Scal being extension eligible. So you'll have that better idea, and hopefully, you'll have a top three pick, which sort of leads into the the under the overarching question here is where are the Kings going to land in the Western Conference? Like what is and we normally will do a worst case scenario and a best case scenario. I don't know that we can do that for the Kings because their worst case scenario is probably winning too many games. So the the question more so here is without knowing for sure how they're gonna distribute their minutes between the veterans and the young guys where do you just see this team ending up? Like, just amongst all these unknowns, where how many wins do you think uh, is going to... Let's say their ceiling, if 
on the wins. And it's, I'm not saying it's an optimistic or pessimistic projection because they should want to lose or maybe they do want to win. So just what do you see the ceiling being capped at for wins on a team like this? I think probably capped, like best case scenario for this team, they get to... Well, is it best case? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 right? It, like, yeah, I, I have air quotes going on right now when I say best case. Uh, uh, so I think they could top out wins-wise, in my projection, probably be about 30-31. would probably be like in the ideal rosy scenario, that's probably where I have them, which is kind of funny because I remember people after the George Hill signing and Zach Randall signing and Vince Carter, I think I did see people, I wish I favorited the tweets, saying the Kings would challenge for a playoff spot, which I laughed at very hard at. Um, so I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, worst case scenario is, you know, Hill plays 30 games, Randolph plays 50 games, and uh, they win, let's say, about like 24 games. I think I mean, Maybe worst case is more like 22, but I think they'll probably fall around like the 25, 26 range um, by the end of the season, which is six wins loss and like six wins less than last year. Um, and I, I think that's probably where it ends up, though. I think they're going to be very more than willing to play the young guys when that all-star break comes up. And I think they're going to be fine tanking just a little bit towards the end of the season. And maybe they don't even have to. The, the West yeah, does, them, right. does right. them a favor there because right now the only team in the West that looks like it's actually trying to lose uh, is the Suns. And yep. they still have Eric Bledsoe. If they're not going to deal Eric Bledsoe, they're going to have to play him and he's going to add a few wins to your bottom line. They were still able to finish with the worst record in the West last year. So you could theoretically, if you're the Kings, try – and if you end up with about the same number of wins as last year, you're still in position uh, with a top seven pick, maybe, uh, at worst, because I think 32 wins would have given you the seventh worst record in the league last year. What Was it eighth? It was eighth. So I, that's not ideal. You would like to see them fall lower, but I, I think they will because the Lakers have an incentive to really try and win all year because they're not going to get their pick. I guess a lot does depend on what's going to happen with Dallas. They've admitted they're rebuilding, but are they going to trade into that rebuild, or are they just bent on keeping Wesley Matthews and Harrison Barnes and, and even Nerlens Noel, who's going to be a free agent, or do you just want to keep all those guys together? Um, so they might just gain some organic ground during the first half of the season before teams start becoming sellers or, or deciding what they're going to do, just because that Western Conference is a bloodbath. There are probably... I th it's between 10 and 12, and so let's just say 11 teams that are going to be able to talk themselves into chasing for a playoff spot. The Kings, if you stretch it to 12, they would be probably that 12th team or it, just because they have those veterans, but I don't think they will be talking themselves into chasing for a playoff berth. And as long as Dave Yeager plays the kids at all enough and we continue to just run back to, to this theme, it, they're just organically going to near the bottom. And I, I think overall that's why I don't have too big – of a problem with what they did in giving out those contracts to Hill, Randolph, and Carter. Uh, they could have gone out and you become a part of that Allen Crab trade. Maybe the Blazers are willing to give you a first-round pick that they didn't give the Nets if you're not sending a crappy contract back to them. Maybe get in on the DeMar Carroll sweepstakes. Uh, Timothy Mozgov, I don't know that you necessarily would have wanted D'Angelo Russell if De'Aaron Fox was, was on your radar, but you could have done that. But you don't know if you have the culture to really do that. And the Nets... They haven't been crowning examples of these of these great cultural teams, but now they are. And you have that coach in Kenny Atkinson who's established a clear blueprint with general manager Sean Mark. So you feel confident enough in your ability to 
kind of make these gambles, but they've even signed strong veteran presences like Trevor Booker. Even Jeremy Lin was supposed to be one of them. Only now did they get to a point where they felt comfortable enough, it seemed like, to trade Brooke Lopez, who was just another steadying force in that locker room last year. You just kept hearing them talk about how much of a professional he was and understanding that everyone was on a minutes cap and what this team is trying to do, even though he wasn't sure whether he was going to be a part of the long-term plan. So this might be the first step. Next year, the Kings should be able to carve out plenty of flexibility. Uh, the, the option of it w- will be there, and that's when you can be more aggressive in going after salary dumps. Or may, Again, maybe with their pick going uh, to Boston or Philadelphia at that point, uh, they'll chase free agents and try and go after a playoff berth. That doesn't seem like the right way to rebuild unless all these youngins just blossom into stars right on the spot. But I have a tough time believing that they'll get to 30 victories in the Western Conference and think that they will be worse than last year and that we could be talking about them once again as holders of a top five pick and it would be nice for their sake if they could get into the top to get the top lottery yards or the top two lottery yards but it looks like they've sacrificed that potential that one year tanking window ever so slightly just so they can lay down a better emotional infrastructure and I I do think that's hard to criticize just because we're not looking at a team that boasted one to begin with and so why are you going to go out there and try and become this salary dumping ground um so i i I think i'm with you there i think they're going to end up you have them at 32 i'm I'm going to take the under on 32 and i I oh no overall uh, well that's the high point i think overall if i had to pick a number i picked 26 for them right there wow that yeah Yeah. that that seems about right uh, worse than last year by six wins that's yeah yeah i just even if you play and so let's assume this. Even if you play George Hill, Zach Randolph, and Vince Carter a ton of minutes, like how many games are they winning yeah, right? with the players that are around them? That's what I was going to ask. Like so, so, so adding these guys to the team, they probably they might have sacrificed their draft odds by two teams, right? Because they weren't the worst team in the league. They probably were with the team they had the second or third worst team in the league. So they're probably pretty assuredly in my mind, like probably worse than probably the Bulls. And definitely the Bulls, possibly the Hawks, possibly the Nets, and possibly the Suns, right? So they're, to me, probably the fifth worst team in the NBA. Um, probably another team could get in there if the Knicks, without Melo now, their offense could get just crater and a couple other teams. But I think right now I'd slot them at two, uh, at four. They might have been two if they didn't add these other guys, but I don't even know if the, I would have made that case at the time. So that's the interesting spot with these signings, right? Is like how much did they actually ditch the tanking effort in order to sign these guys and and i don't know if they sacrificed that much to do so and we've kind of beat that conversation to a um to a pulp at this point but i i really do think that's like the interesting thing with this team and that's what the conversation all summer was at least regarding the kings that's what the conversation was all summer um the choice that they made and i really don't think it was it's going to kill them in the long run i mean especially if they had the um the flat nods for the lottery this year, which they won't. I think it's next year they do it. Um, yeah, twenty. But if they had it, yeah. So if they had it this year, it actually would have been beneficial for them. But uh, so I guess we'll see what happens. Maybe they end up getting the number two pick or the number one pick if things work out in their favor. But uh, I guess that's what happens with the odds, right? We won't know until May about all that. <laughs> and you pick twenty six wins. They won. At oh yeah, twenty six win sure. pace to close the season last year. After that, Demarcus Cousins trade, uh, and. You know, some of those wins, it's the end of the season. It's weird. They beat Minnesota. Uh, they beat Dallas. They beat Phoenix, who what definitely wasn't trying the second-to-last game of the season. How many wins could George Hill, Vince Carter, and Zach Randolph feasibly 
add to that is, is what it comes down to for the team. And you have to believe at, at, that they will turn some of these young guys loose, especially above all else, anyone, Scal and Heald, who they gave green lights to at the end of last season. You can't think they're just going to renege on those right away. And if they were committed to them then, we shouldn't be under the guise that they're not going to be committed to De'Aaron Fox now. And anything could happen along the lines of the trade deadline where Garrett Temple goes, and that's an impact player who would help you. The Nuggets need to be talking to the Suns and the Kings about either Bledsoe or George Hill because they look like they could use some point guard help even with the best passing front court in the NBA. So anything could kind of pop up. And if you make a trade, if Hill goes, or if you get rid of Garrett Temple, or if you're at a point where you can say, hey, we're just not going to play these vets, this all of a sudden looks like a 25-win team, and maybe which, which teams can you say with certainty are going to be worse than them next season? And with certainty, I don't know that you can necessarily say anyone. Phoenix seems like a good bet. Uh, I wouldn't pick the Lakers. I don't know that I'd pick the Nets, Knicks, or Magic, but I think you have to say, well, one of them's going to be worse than them. So there's maybe two to three teams max that you can look at and say they're going to be worse than the Kings this year. And with doing what they did over the offseason, I think that's that's an okay spot to be. The bigger question is how will they react to whatever happens this upcoming season is what are they going to do leading into next summer are they really going to steer into this rebuild and keep it going or are they going to look and see that that 2019 draft pick is gone and it's really gonna you know where the nets have now with this regime they've looked at it as those were sunk costs boston has our picks we will reset the decks and we'll have our draft picks back in 2019 we'll try and stockpile other assets as we can can the kings take that mindset it's not as long term of a project because they luckily didn't trade away that many picks but when you don't have that 2019 asset incoming and if for some reason you don't land a top five pick this year i'll just be very interested to see how they react and how committed they are to what appears to be the early steps of a thorough rebuild yeah it uh is that by any means the same situation as the knicks but it, it does feel a little bit similar to the um jackson the summer where he he got rollo and he got aaron aflalo uh, and Kyle Quinn, and he seemed to be making these kind of mid-sized acquisitions that most fans liked, and then followed that up with the Derrick Rose and Joe Kim Noah um, contracts and trades. I don't, I don't want to say anything bad for the Kings because I don't want anything bad to happen. But does it feel like the other shoe's about to drop for them? Right, like something like that's going to happen, where they're going to seem seem to have this plan, and Scal will bust out, and they feel like, oh, we have finally have a superstar, or Fox bust out. And then they feel like they have to finally add a decent free agent player that comes out of um, that is a free agent this summer. Um, and a little part of me feels like they will do that, and I really hope they don't. I, I really do feel like they turned another, turned the leaf um, on this organization, and I hope they do. But a little part of me feels like they're still the Kings, right? It's almost like why would you bet against something that they've done wrong for so many years, right? Like the Knicks, I don't I don't expect competency from them until they show for a substantial period of time that they are confident. Um, so I still want to see more from them, but you're right. I, I guess next year is kind of the big key to see if they're going to keep with what they're doing or they're going to change completely and go back to their old ways and sign free agents that they shouldn't sign and trade future picks to the 76ers and swap rights and such. <laughs> so uh, And cap face is a dangerous thing to kind of have too. Just because oh, – yeah. 
It, yep. They can get to if they try. Like they should be able to get to twenty plus million easy, twenty five plus million next year easy. Looking at their numbers, and that's a dangerous thing to have because teams aren't. It doesn't seem like they're going to be shelling out these big money deals. So you'll get to a point where you can overbid on these mid end free agents to get them. And again, it's running in circles, but that'll be a test for them if they have that cap space or they're willing to use it on the right players. They should be taking flyers on the restricted free agents that are young and you throw them these offer sheets and if they get matched you know you missed out if they don't uh then you have this younger player it's what the nets have tried to do uh, over the past two off seasons and it's probably a good blueprint for the kings to follow i just i'm interested to see whether they have the stomach for the, this type of rebuild so uh i think that that kind of about puts the cap on them as we think they're going to be 25 26 maybe a 27 win team and if it gets to the point where it looks like they're that much better than expected you'll probably see i would ex- i would think a, a lot of wheeling and dealing leading in into the trade deadline so I, I don't know if you have anything to add to that uh no i don't i just i wish the best on the kings i hope we see greatness from scal and from fox and uh we get some underratedly fun league pass games from them this year <laughs> and just some fun i hope there's like fun small ball combinations where we see more yes, of Scal at sure. center. Maybe I don't know how realistic that is to expect with all the bigs on the roster, but that, that's a way to keep things interesting. Totally great. Like we said, I hope we get some of that and some, uh, they get a little crazy with, I mean, they're going to have to, but play three guards um, at certain times would be nice to see. Um, I, yeah. Just have some fun with it. Kings. Come on. We want to see some fun from you this year. And that's where we're going to end it. Tom Randy wants to see some fun from the Sacramento Kings this year. That's going to be the model of their rebuild. The Sixers had trust the process. The Kings are going to have have fun with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you want to talk to Tom about his Kings takes on Twitter, you could find him at trendy19. That's T-R-E-N-D-E-19. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Favalli. That's F-A-V-A-L-E. You can follow Andy Bailey at Andrew D. Bailey, spelled exactly as it sounds. Please be sure to follow the NBA Math official account at NBA underscore math. You can find us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox as well. Please go on iTunes, subscribe, give us ratings, give us reviews. Any type of reviews are fine. We prefer the positive ones because Andy and me are very soft and we get our feelings hurt pretty easily. But any reviews are are appreciated. Since Andy is not here, I will not be giving a shout out to a special someone who shall remain nameless at this point. So until next time. Five Hour Tea with caffeine from green tea leaves. It's delicious, energizing, and comes in three amazing flavors. With zero sugar and four calories, it fits your life. With its compact size and portability, it goes where you go. To the campsite, the hiking trail, the beach, without weighing you down. Five Hour Tea. Caffeine from green tea leaves. Release your natural sight. From the makers of Five Hour Energy. For more information, visit fivehourenergy.com. Five Hour Tea with caffeine from green tea leaves. It's delicious, energizing, and comes in three amazing flavors. With zero sugar and four calories, it fits your life. With its compact size and portability, it goes where you go. To the campsite, the hiking trail, the beach, without weighing you down. Five Hour Tea. Caffeine from green tea leaves. Release your natural sight. From the makers of Five Hour Energy. For more information, visit fivehourenergy.com. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. 
legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history, relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.